Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The eyes of the world, the eyes of the populations of the world are on you and we have your numbers. That lingering sensual please remains and we'll see what comes next. We need to make sure that what sits there on a piece of paper is actually going to turn into tangible, actionable projects on the ground that are going to make a difference to people's lives. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, Labour says the Deputy Prime Minister Dominic Raj should consider his position after a whistleblower accused the Foreign Office of a chaotic handling of the evacuation from Afghanistan. Junior diplomat Raphael Marshall says that Rob, who was Foreign Secretary at the time, quote, did not fully understand the situation after the Taliban took power in August. Rob says enormous efforts were made to get people away from Afghanistan. 15,000 people evacuated in two weeks. Never been done before, certainly not in my living memory. And uh, only the United States got more people out. I think, uh, I think that was actually a record that those involved, particularly those working on the ground, should be proud of. The government says 15,000 people were successfully evacuated in a fortnight. Meanwhile, the pre-pandemic COVID tests are now needed for all arrivals into the UK. Yesterday, the Health Secretary Sajid Javid said that the Omicron variant is spreading through the community now in England. Government scientific advisers believe that Omicron infections in the UK are doubling every three days. On the other hand, some good news. GlaxoSmithKline said that its research shows that its COVID-19 antibody treatment is effective against the full combination of mutations in this new variant. So that's the latest on Omicron. Well, the UK is moving forward with trade engagement with individual US states and stands ready to resume talks with Washington on a broader federal deal. That's what Anne-Marie Trevelyan, the International Trade Secretary, told Bloomberg TV in an exclusive interview. She spoke with Romain Bostic, Somali Bashak and Taylor Riggs. They asked whether trade with the US is where she wants it to be in a post-Brexit era. So we have a fantastic bilateral trade relationship with the US, uh, over 200 billion a year of trade between uh, our two great nations. Uh, But of course, we want that to be uh, more. We want to reduce some of the uh, barriers to trade that still exist. And with that, we are uh, looking to continue to work on the comprehensive free trade agreement that, as you uh, say, uh, a lot of the work was begun uh, under the previous administration uh, at the moment. And I completely understand why the Biden administration is focused very much on its uh, domestic issues. You know, COVID it has uh, put pressures on everybody and uh, it's no different here in the US. Uh, but we stand ready to pick up and continue those negotiations uh, with uh, the team uh, as and when there's the capacity to do so. In the meantime, I'm here to have a chance to catch up with uh, Ambassador Tai and uh, Secretary uh, Raimondo to talk about trade and more widely think about the many issues that we're working on together, not only uh, bilaterally between uh, us uh, as two nations, but thinking about how we provide that yeah. uh, global leadership on so many issues. When you, when you sit down with your two people, there and you ask them about these tariffs, you ask them about some of the trade barriers that are still in place, a legacy mm-hmm. of the Trump administration mm-hmm. and a legacy that the, for the most part the Biden administration hasn't touched and he's not and not really made a, a public statement about being willing to touch them. What's the persuasive argument that you make to them? 
So I think in a number of areas we're working very closely together and we want to continue to grow on that, particularly in something like green trade, where uh, the US has very much come back into the uh, global conversation. It was wonderful to have John Kerry really advocating uh, on behalf of the US and for the world at COP26 in Glasgow with us just a few weeks ago. Uh, And those relationships are so strong and so important. Uh, And on the side, we want to think about tackling things like uh, steel traps. But we were very pleased that uh, last week the Act was put through uh, to remove the remaining issues for lamb exports from the UK to the US. So that's a really exciting thing. 20 years in in waiting to be solved. So that's one that's my lamb farmers in Northumberland, where my constituency is, will be very pleased about. I'm really curious about your conversations with Secretary Raimondo in particular. What seems to be her priority in regards to uh, negotiations with you? So I'm looking forward to meeting her formally. I've only had the chance to meet her virtually so far, as so many uh, cases. So I'm really looking forward to having the chance to have a proper conversation with her face-to-face. And we're keen to discuss a broad range of issues uh, in the trade space, not only how uh, we might uh, pick up on the FTA uh, in due course, but things like uh, uh, female empowerment, investment in female businesses, an issue that not only in our two countries, but uh, globally is something that we want to tackle and we want to really drive forwards on. You know, you mentioned the FTA, and we talk about Gina Ramon, and we know her as the former governor of Rhode Island. There's been sort of this key shift, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, and more of a state-by-state approach, mm-hmm. a focus on maybe New York or California, whether that be agriculture or digital. Is that a pivot, a state-by-state approach? So we are doing that now whilst we uh, wait the opportunity to pick up uh, to carry on the overarching comprehensive uh, conversations. Uh, one of my ministers, uh, Penny Mort, is presently in California mm-hmm. having exactly these conversations, and she'll be also visiting Georgia and Tennessee and South Carolina and Oklahoma uh, in the ranch Christmas uh, and maybe doing a bit of Christmas shopping while she's here, uh, enjoying all that the US offers really to have those conversations, think about things like uh, how we can uh, release some of the barriers around qualifications yeah. uh, so that those service uh, flows can move more easily. State procurement, those are really interesting issues uh, and areas where you know a state holds, holds the control over that. So thinking about how we can build those relationships so that um, we can see investment flows both from the US uh, to the UK and vice versa in a number of areas, uh, you know, we have we have over a trillion dollars of investment uh, between us in our two nations. We want to see right. that continue to grow. But with regards to financial services and mm. that side of it, there still has to be a federal effectively sign off on it, at least from the United States side. So, yes, at, at a number of levels on that overarching yeah. area, those areas clearly require mm-hmm. uh, the federal uh, FTA. But in the meantime, because when we get to that point and, you know, the U.S. is asking for approval of the mm-hmm. FTA that we uh, finalise, it will require the support and the voice of all yeah. those states. So we can do a lot of the work now uh, and build those relationships and make sure that businesses are really, uh, you know, pushing pushing from your side, yeah. from the U.S. side, to make sure that we see the package that we want. I, I am curious about the relationship right now between the U.K. and the U.S., mm-hmm. There are some people that look at the stasis in these talks and they view it as the U.S. effectively punishing the U.K. for Brexit. So uh, the U.S. isn't having FTA talks with anyone at the moment. I think, uh, as I said, I think the, the White House administration has, and I think for very, very clear reasons, had to focus very much both on the COVID challenges and the Infrastructure Act, building, building better, all those very, very domestically focused issues to really try and get to grips with the challenges. And we have all, you know, we've all experienced those. We've had the same uh, in the U.K. So that's been a focus. Uh, we're very keen uh, and we're driving uh, FTA uh, discussions with a number of countries now, and the U- U.S. continues to one that we want to make progress on, but we wait uh, for the White House administration to be ready to do so. Are you in talks right now with China? 
So no, we have a, a strong bilateral trade relationship with China, but we're not in talks from FTA with them, no. And lastly, you know, with the spread, obviously we have you here, it's lovely to have you in studio, but with the spread of the Omicron virus, how has that made your job more difficult? So I think we're waiting to see, and I know that uh, our scientists are doing a great deal of work at Port and Down, and I know the US are too, to understand exactly what this variant looks like and whether, though it seems to be more transmissible, whether it is, uh, let's hope, uh, not uh, more virulent in its impact. Uh, but that continues to bring those levels of, of anxiety. So we've brought uh, masks back in in retail and transport sectors to just to help reduce those risks of transmission whilst we get to grips with understanding uh, what its impact is. But we're very keen, the Prime Minister Johnson is very keen to to ensure that we keep our economy moving forwards and that I think, I think as, all, as all of us as citizens have learned to understand that small changes in the way we behave like a mask about you know, making sure that you uh, clean your hands regularly can be enough to reduce uh, those flows and we want to continue to do that. But at a travel level, obviously, uh, we, we maintain those uh, clear lines so that we can reduce the risk as much as we can. Well, that was Anne-Marie Trevelyan, the International Trade Secretary, speaking exclusively to Bloomberg TV uh, from the US, where she's on that three-day uh, mission to uh, drum up trade for the UK. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's join. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about this issue. We're joined by Bloomberg's James Wilcock in the radio studio this morning. Boris Johnson made the big promise, securing a favourable trade deal with America before the next general election here in 2024. But that looks further off than ever before. Hello, and it's a it's a pleasure to be joining you in the little podcast cavern uh, all together, <laughs> all in person. And I mean, all in person, I think highlights that for the moment, trade isn't what Boris is worried about. He's concerned about COVID. He's concerned about the energy crisis. So in many ways, this is something that has slipped past a lot of people. But these promises do remain that back in 2017, he said the UK was first in line for a trade deal with the US. It was a key issue the Brexit campaign was fought upon in terms of this is something that's supposed to be able to sort of free up the UK and distance itself. Now, I talked to the print reporters who were with Anne-Marie Trevelyan, and she said after that TV interview uh, that the US was clear in October they want to pick up and have that conversation now around steel tariffs. But it was natural to resolve the steel dispute with the EU first because the bloc is a larger exporter of steel to the US than is Britain. Now, I think that puts the whole interview in a bit of a different light um, because this whole point of Brexit is supposed to free up the EU. And you can argue the Biden administration has very different priorities to the Trump administration. I think it's very fair to say they're more focused domestically. The pandemic has changed their views. They have strong views in Asia. Mm. But steel hurts because if you forget the other two, the EU wanted it gone and they've got it gone. The UK wants it gone and they still have it because they're not part of a larger trading block. And that stands in direct contradiction to what Johnson said back in 2017. And that's why for this government, it may not be worried about it now, but the record is quite clear. In terms of a wider trade deal, uh, we know this isn't a big priority for Biden. Is it a, is it a priority at all, even after COVID's gone? Is he going to devote any attention to it? I think it's certainly very far down his list of priorities. Um, I think for him, the question is, again, the UK being separate to the part of the EU it is easily able to be sort of swung over on side issues, like, for example, Brexit and Northern Ireland. Like, Biden obviously has a stake in Northern Ireland. He has Northern Irish heritage. He and his administration have made it clear that they are interested in what goes on in that part of the world. They aren't as interested in terms of trade. Something where they have refocused their attention is defence. And that's somewhere the UK has had a large amount of success in terms of AUKUS and getting on sort of the Australia-US agreement and getting off France. That was a coup for them. So Biden's priorities have shifted from the Trump administration. It's more about sort of defence and a foreign policy stance with China, less about mercantilism. And in that, 
the dangers of sort of the Northern Ireland risk for Johnson is by taking a very strong foreign policy stance to sort of get Brexit over the line with the EU, he risks offending a US administration with very different sensibilities. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's take a look at what else is making news in the world of politics today. US President Joe Biden spoke with Boris Johnson and the leaders of France, Germany and Italy agreeing to work together to prevent aggression by Russia over Ukraine. Sources tell Bloomberg that the US and its European allies are considering sanctions targeting Russia's biggest banks if Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine. Biden has a call planned with Putin today. Now, Labour veteran Harriet Harman will stand down as an MP at the next general election. The 71-year-old former minister will not run for her Camberwell and Peckham seat after nearly 40 years in Parliament. Harman said that she would then leave the Commons, quote, now confident that Labour is gaining strength under the leadership of Keir Starmer. And more people are back in the city of London than at any time since the lockdown in March of last year. Almost 80% of workers in the financial district were back at their desks on Tuesday and Thursday of last week. That's according to data compiled by Google, which tracks the location of its users. Christmas parties may have been encouraging more people to come to the area, but firms are starting to cancel those gatherings or to scale back their party plans in the face of the new Omicron variant. Yeah, perhaps we're all worried about that. Right, let's move on to our substantive conversation now. The University and College Union is re-balloting staff on more strike action at universities across the UK. It comes after a three-day strike action at the start of December by lecturers at 58 different institutions. They were striking about pay, pensions, the casualisation of contracts and rising workloads. Well, the government's also preparing a higher education white paper. After a year of pandemic disruptions, the government is under pressure to deliver on its levelling up agenda in the sphere of education. Well, let's discuss this now with David Willits, the president of the Resolution Foundation and a former minister for universities and science who oversaw the uh, increase in university tuition fees uh, under the coalition government uh, back in uh, 2012. Lord Willits, thank you uh, so much for joining us today. Uh, in a Good recent morning. article, you talk about the uh, lack of white working class boys going to university. Why is it so important to reach that demographic? Because going to university is still an important route into a well-paid job and also building up other forms of human capital. I mean, by and large, graduates uh, tend, for example, to live longer for reasons we don't fully understand, but maybe partly to do with uh, what they learn and study. So it's this opportunity, which is now taken by over half of young people in Britain, but it's only taken by about 12% of young working-class boys who are on free school meals in, uh, at school. Uh, so the government is absolutely right to make one of its targets for broadening access to university, helping those young, young boys have the opportunity of going to university. And it then opens up the question how you achieve it. And my view is you can't deprive other people of the opportunity. So it's a reason why we're going to see continuing growth in university places. Yes, and I was going to ask, ask the question, which is, is there a danger 
of making this policy sort of racially charged? Well, I think that it does stand out as a distinctive... They do stand out as a distinctive group. There's a very high, You're right about it being very highly charged if one talks in any way as if white people have some kind of disadvantage in the UK. But nevertheless, it is the case, and we know the kind of places where these uh, people with these disadvantages are concentrated. There is this distinctive group, which anything underperforms relative to participation by many ethnic minority groups. So the government is right to identify them. But of course, there are many other targets for improving participation as well, um, and including some ethnic groups. You want more people to go to university. I think it would probably be fair to say that that's somewhat controversial within the Conservative Party, not because uh, Conservatives don't believe in university, but because they've been very disparaging of of Labour targets in the past, saying there must be 50% or there must be 60%. Why do you think, why do you, why do you believe that? Yeah, you're right. And of course, the fact is, if you look at British history, ever since Robbins proposed in his great report more than 50 years ago now, that we should go above 5% of going to university. Even then, the critics said, oh, you can't possibly expand it above 5%. You're going to lower standards. The country doesn't need all those graduates. And that's been a rumbling discontent as it has remorselessly risen from 5% to over 50%. I don't believe in targets. I don't believe in setting targets. I'm a conservative. I think it should be a result of choice. But the fact is that in most advanced Western societies, more and more people are choosing to go to university. In fact, it's one of the few reliable empirical observations for OECD data would be in most years, in most OECD countries, the number of people going into higher education grows. So if we just accept that that is a deep-seated economic and social trend and plan accordingly, we would be be doing, uh, I think, would be the right approach. It's a sensible one based on the evidence. Yeah, sure. A knowledge-based economy perhaps would be a more valuable one. The thing is, who is doing the teaching? The university and college union, for example, say if you uberize their profession, i.e. if you make you know the, the contracts for university teachers um, less strong, that it's more essentially of a gig economy, certainly on the lower echelons perhaps of, of university, um, you know, teaching posts, that that is massively problematic. You can't kind of deliver high-quality education if you don't have uh, high-quality teachers with decent paying contracts. Well, I think that the the labour market in higher education is a mix, uh, and there are also a significant number of university academics who quite rightly are on uh, much more solid permanent contracts. But where I do have some a, a small bit of sympathy with the UCU point is this. This is the kind of thing that happens if we don't recognise we're dealing with fundamentally a growing sector. So people are endlessly taken by surprise when more, more students turn up. And of course, the virus has been yet another impetus to more young people, given they couldn't find jobs, staying on in education at all levels, at school and college and university. Um, if you plan for growth and accept that this is both a sector with massive domestic demand, but also one of our great international success stories with surging international demand, uh, and UCAS now predicts that within a few years they're going to have a million student applications per year from overseas and domestic students. Once you accept it's a growth sector, then it changes the way you train people, it changes your patterns of recruitment. You're endlessly taken by surprise. And I think it's mm. therefore really important we plan for growth. And we also yeah. take that opportunity 
to deliver levelling up. We should be planning new universities in low participation towns and cities that don't currently have one. One of the issues, though, about universities, I mean, you mentioned foreign students, a very large cohort, the largest of foreign students are Chinese students uh, into the UK. Yes, that was perhaps a bit bumpy because of the pandemic. But there's also a concern with UK universities that being so reliant on Chinese students that there's a real danger to academic freedom. In the last two years, we've seen a lot, three years, we've seen a lot of those fights. Well, we need. it's really important that... Western universities, like British universities, absolutely stand up for our fundamental Western values while students are here from whichever country. Yes, yeah, so you're absolutely right. But can right we? On that. I mean, that, that's a great phrase, but that you know, but there are challenges. Um, a lot of people say that UK universities have have bent in some ways to the demands of those foreign students. Uh, the I don't. If there are such cases, and obviously I follow this quite closely, mm. I, I think we have um, robustly protected our values. What The one thing we can do, and look, I think it's great that Chinese students come to study in Britain. I think they should be welcome in Britain. However, we also need to attract students from other countries. That If we are to shift the balance of students, it should be from attracting even more students, for example, from India. When I was minister, we had a really tough time with India and recruiting from India for various reasons. It would be great to see more students from India coming to study here. And then there are other emerging countries. And, of course, we've got to continue to attract European students after Brexit. So Chinese students, as part of a wider mix, is a great way of ensuring we're never dependent on overseas students from any one particular country. Without getting into a 10-year-old debate about tuition fees, and I accept that mm-hmm. the numbers coming to university have increased over the past 10 years, that 12% of white working-class boys not going to university, working-class families are famously debt-averse. Do, do, do you think that the big levels of debt imposed on students has been a factor in that? I hope not. I mean, like, we put a lot of effort in to explain to people that this is not a debt like a mortgage or an overdraft or a credit card debt. This is basically an obligation to repay out of uh, out of PAYE at 9% above a very high threshold, currently £27,000. So it's not like the American system where people are struggling with debt that gets in the way of your ability to borrow commercially or take out a mortgage. If any young person thinks that somehow they have to pay up front or they're going to be saddled with a sort of commercial debt, that would be, and they therefore can't apply, that would be a tragedy. Uh, But Mm. we've all got to work very hard. If any young person has that misapprehension to to tackle it. And the good news is that overall, the numbers applying just keep on rising. As I said, it's a very robust upward trend. And we've now got an increase in the number of young people because the birth rate surged in the first decade. So this is a, a growth sector where Britain has a very high international reputation, some really strong universities, and it's how we're going to pay our way in the world in the 21st century. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. 
Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.